Welcome back, everybody, to season two of Fine Answers. This season, we are going to kind of follow a similar track that we did with last season, where basically every other episode, we're going to discuss a book that we are all reading and, and sort of tie it back to how it pertains to finance and how it pertains to wealth management. This season's book is a book by Mauro Guillen. It's entitled 2030, and it's essentially explores sort of how the world is going to look, you know, nine, 10 years from now and, and how that is going to affect our everyday lives and affect your finances. And another point of housekeeping this season is probably going to be a little all over the map pandemic wise. So today we have three of us actually live in the office. Obviously we're all kind of separated and have masks on and then Eric's joining us remotely. So just try to bear with us this season as we kind of sub in and out with remote and in person. So audio probably won't be the best all the time, but we appreciate your understanding. So as I said, today, we're going to start out with that, that kind of first discussion of the book in George, what do, uh, what are we looking at for chapter one? In the first chapter, he kind of focused in on the shifting populations around the world, as well as the shifting age groups. Yeah. He really talks about, you know, in, in the past, how the population growth around the world has been driven primarily by India and China and you know, that is not necessarily going to be the same going forward, right? So we, right now, I think the, re the replacement rate of babies, and if you look at it and you say, okay, for every couple, they have to have two babies to essentially keep the population the same, right? So as they age and, and pass away, eventually, they have to have two children to keep the population stable. In the United States right now, the replacement rate is sub two, right? It's, it's one and change. So if you look forward over time, it basically means that the population will shrink based on the people that currently live here, right? So really any population growth in the future is probably going to be immigration. Um, so that, that points true for developed countries like the US, Canada, et cetera, but for sort of more developing emerging markets, that's, it's completely the opposite right now. One of the stats that he gave in the book is for every one baby that's born in the US, there are nine babies born in Africa. So that's kind of his point is, you know, the, the disbursement of population right now across the world is going to look very different 10 years from now because, you know, they're, they're on this complete upswing in, like Mike said, because we're sub two, we're almost on a downswing if you exclude immigration. I, I, also, I also think that one of the things to think about is, you know, obviously there's some wealthy areas and wealthy countries in Africa, and there's also some poor uh, countries and areas. But one of the things to keep in mind is a lot of the world, and especially in that area, doesn't even have access to, you know, strong internet and iPads and all this different stuff. There's actually probably half of the world that is still potential customers for companies around the world to be able to earn money, service people or whatever. So as we talk about these demographic shifts, there's also going to be an expanding group of customers, you know, into the future. So how, how do you think that Africa is going to need to adapt to accept, accept this population growth? If they're having this exponential, you know, population growth over the, over the next few years, and for every couple, there's, there's nine babies that they're going to have to really expand agriculture, their infrastructure. And, you know, he talked about this a lot in the book and they're sort of going through what we went through when we had our, our giant population boom, right? I think one of the most interesting points that the, that he makes is, you know, you look at the population of China and kind of at least me in, in my head, you kind of look at it as China's going to be the population epicenter of the world. And 
that's probably not going to be true going forward, right? They have been, you know, because the population exploded in, in the 60s and 70s, but the, the, the replacement rate has been dropping over time for kind of the same reasons as in the, in the United States, right? Is, you know, there's more opportunities for women, there's more advancement of the society, and as you kind of do these things and, and introduce technology, the replacement rate tends to drop. So China, I think right now is sub two, as far as the replacement rate goes, yeah. which means that, again, their population is not going to grow as much as it has in the past. So he talks about in the book that, you know, 10 years from now in 2030, that part of the world may not be the the, the biggest population center. It could be, you know, Southern Asia, in, including India, followed by potentially Africa. And, you know, I think, again, kind of like we just talked about, the, the question becomes, well, how does Africa adapt to support it? And if you look at, you know, what what the other developed countries have done, the primary thing that we had to do was improve our, our agriculture, right, is to, to provide the food for the people. And, you know, I think you mentioned this in the book that, that I forget the guy's name, but he, he talked about when there was a, a billion people in the world, they said that the, the biggest issue was going to be that we couldn't support two billion because the food supply would run out and so that, you know, mankind was essentially doomed because we weren't going to be able to feed the people that we had. And now we're at seven and a half billion. And, you know, the, the food supply is not necessarily the the biggest issue. I mean, the logistics of the food supply, you could argue, are. But, right. you know, we, we are able to feed the people that, that live here as far as production. So I guess part of the question is, uh, and maybe we, we focus more on the U.S. because I think that's <laughs> where all of our listenership is from. But why is that replacement rate dropping so heavily? And I think Mike kind of alluded to it a little bit in... Part of it is because over, over the last 50 years or so, women have really changed their role in society from being the, the stereotypical housewife in the 50s to really becoming a part of the workforce, just like men are. And because of that, they're not wanting to stop and, and take you know all this time out of their lives to have a baby and, and raise one. And even if they do, they're not going to want to do it again you know, a couple of years later. And at the same time, too, kids are getting very expensive to raise. He, he said in the book in 2015 that there was a stat that essentially a child was just about a quarter of a million dollars to raise from, from birth to 17 years old. And that excludes higher education. And if you include that, it, it's almost double that. So a, a half a million dollar investment. And people, as cynical as it sounds, are kind of looking at that and saying, well, maybe we should shift our priorities to, to something else and either have no kids or, or fewer kids. Because, you know, it's it, a lot of it ties back to money. It, it does. And, it, you know, I, I I know people personally, friends of mine that, that had a, a one child and made the decision not to have more specifically because they just couldn't afford it. And I think it's a, it, it's a few things too, right? It's in the, in the book, he says they focus on the, the, the quality, the, what is it? The quality instead of the quantity of children. And it right. sounds strange thinking the quality of the child. But when you think about it, it makes sense in that if you have one child and you can, you know, direct your resources towards giving them all of the opportunities you can possibly give to them versus having multiple children and not be able to give them much opportunity, you know, that's that's kind of the decision more people are making is to is to give the one child the, the best possible life they, they can as opposed to having more kids. Yeah, and I mean, George is the youngest of three, and, and look what happened on the third one. <laughs> yeah, this from Qual an, quality fell off the cliff. From an investment perspective, it sounds like a sunk cost to me, but... <laughs> 
um, but I, I think the other there's there's kind of a few other things too, right? Is when you look at it, it's it's also and I don't have any evidence to back this up. This is just totally my opinion, but it's also the idea that infant mortality rates and child mortality rates have dropped so dramatically, right? Generations ago, people tried to have as many kids as they could because there was such a high rate of, of death among children that the more you had, the more potential there was to carry on your family, right? Mm. Is that if you only had one child and there was a reasonable chance that child wasn't going to see adulthood, that was a, a huge risk, right? To your family and, and you know, carrying on the, the, the family. Whereas now that's not quite, that's not really something people think about, right? If they mm. have one child, their first concern is not, well, what if something happens to this child? We better have another one. It, you, you almost take for granted that as long as you can provide decent healthcare, that that child's going to survive and, and be okay. And, and to, truthfully, some of that probably explains the big disparity between birth rates in developed countries and some less developed areas. But again, in Africa, I think in the book, he talks about that the infant mortality rate has dropped what, 60% mm. in the past, however long, the past couple of decades. Um, you know, so that's, yeah, that's huge. I mean, it's, it's it kind of goes to the, the idea that, you know, and, and a little off topic, but the idea that the world has actually never been a better place. We just are told that it's not right. Like if you look statistically around the world at how many people are living in poverty, access to clean water, child mortality rates, like all of these big terrible things that have been issues for so long. They're actually better today than they ever have been in hi human history. But yet we look at the world as though it's a worse place every year, you know, and it's a lot of that is just the fact that we're bombarded with negative information all the time. Right. It's interesting. I mean, Matt mentioned the every one child in the U S there's nine in Africa being born. And you mentioned undeveloped areas, Mike, I mean, is child labor, does child labor have anything to do with having more kids to potentially, you know, so for instance, you know, my mother's family, they were all working in the farms at a young, young age. And is that, do you think that's, any, that, that has anything to do with potentially? I mean, yeah, possibly, right? I mean, it, you know, like Matt said, as, as your economy evolves, the needs of that economy change. And if you were, you know, a family that had a farm and needed work on the farm and you had sons, well, they're going to go out and work on the, on the farm. You know, it's just the way it is. And now it's if you work in an office building, it's not even a, it's not even something that crosses your mind. Right. You know? So I guess let's bring it back and say, okay, so, you know, we've established that across the world, developing countries are, are having quite a high birth rate while developed nations are really seeing a, a drop in birth rate actually below the kind of threshold replacement ratio. So, as those two things happen at the same time, there's obviously going to be a higher focus on immigration, especially for the U.S. Because if you know, if you step back and think about it, if you if you completely cut immigration out of the equation, and the replacement ratio is below two in the U.S., then we're eventually running out of people, right? And and that's going to adversely affect our economy. So, I, sorry, go ahead, Eric. No, I was also going to say that that is one important part. The other thing is. That's also why a lot of the biggest and best companies in the world are, they're American companies, but they're global companies, right? They have customers all over the world and they meet the people where they are. So one of the reasons from our standpoint, we invest in diversified portfolios, mostly of mutual funds that have a lot of these same underlying stocks in it is because 
we know that these big companies are looking at the trends of where people are and you know where people are buying stuff and we're not we're not having to spend our time figuring out what are the couple companies that are doing x y or z we're letting the companies do that and, and meet the people where they are and i think we got to remember that although trends change and we're looking at the epicenter of where the most people are in the world keeps shifting that doesn't necessarily affect what we're trying to do from a financial standpoint for our clients because these companies are global companies and they're going to go meet the customers where they are. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and I think, like you say, I mean, part of that is going to be looking at the future and saying, okay, you know, if Africa might be the, the population center that grows the most over the next 10 years, you know, is, is that economy essentially China 20 years ago, right? Like if you look out 10 years, is Africa turning into, or portions of Africa turning into more, more developed areas and, and, you know, establishing economies. And as he said in the book, I think, you know, the population growth might be the thing that finally gets them to focus on improving the agriculture and training farmers. I mean, he talks about a lot in the book, how, how farmers in Africa don't really have access to the information about how to make their crops more stable and, and to increase the yields and stuff like that, because just nobody's ever told them, you know, they, it's really just trial and error. And if you live in an area where the soil is not great for certain crops, they don't, they don't really know that, you know, you can use different seeds and fertilizers and all these different things to try to make it better. They just you know, try to figure out how to do it. And, you know, if your population starts to grow to the point where you need to improve that, well, now you might make the investment to, to, bring in people and, and train farmers on how to, how to increase the yields to feed the, feed the population. Going back to what we were just talking about on, on immigration, I think, you know, that in the United States is going to be one of the biggest things that people have to start to understand, right? Is that, you know, whatever your opinion of immigration or legal or illegal or whatever it is, we're almost forced into having to accept it at some point, right? Because like Matt said, the the population, if it doesn't grow, it's going to be an issue because if if you have more baby boomers retiring every day, then you have people coming into the workforce, you're going to eventually get to a point where you have more jobs than you have people and you need people to fill those jobs in order to grow the economy, right? If, if you don't, your economy is not going to grow because you can't create more jobs and, and improve and, and, you know, grow the amount of stuff you're producing if you don't have people to produce it. Right. And I mean, tying it to something specific, you know, looking at social security, right? Social security is, is on its last legs already, but as we progress closer to 2030, it's going to be even in more of a world of hurt And you need your workforce to continue to sustain a certain level to, to fund that, right? Because all the funding from the current workers is basically funding the retirees. So, you know, you see a huge disproportionately more retirees are kind of anti-immigration, right? And I don't want to go down a political rabbit hole here, but just, you know, on the surface, that's kind of what you see. But the funny part is those retirees need immigrants more than ever to make sure social security remains funded. Um, and like I said, that's almost a layer on top, right? Is that you need people to fill the jobs to keep the economy running, but you're right. You also need people working pay into social security right to pay out social security benefits and i mean you kind of see you know a lot of a lot of immigration is bringing in some really bright talent and some some of the biggest brains around the world are kind of flocking to the u.s and it's been great for for the u.s economy 
to your point, Matt, I mean, if, if they're migrating away from their country coming to the U.S., isn't that kind of taken away from, you know, they're the best minds of the developing countries. Yeah, know? I mean, to some extent, that that argument is possible. But you know, the author was kind of saying that you're losing some of the best and brightest of these developing countries. And you know, the argument is they could be there helping helping their economies. But at the same time, when they come over here, they still have very close ties to their origin country. So you're essentially creating these micro bridges between each country, the U.S. and in whichever country they immigrated from. And that could that could be hugely beneficial to the to the developing country. Well, and to your point, right? You're in a world economy. That's kind of what you want. You want the you want to match the people up with the resources as mo as efficiently as you can, right? And if they have the intelligence, but not the resources, well, then, like you say, the best thing to do is to have them immigrate to a country where the resources exist, and then use whatever you know is produced to help to help their their home country. So, like I say, I think that the the most important part to the whole thing is is world trade, and you know keeping these trade lanes open so that you know as you create these efficiencies and move people around to the most efficient place that it can benefit everybody and not just the country that they went to. Right, and you know again, not to get political, but in in for the for the point of this topic, we're only talking about legal immigration, but you know it's. Even legal immigration is a, a somewhat a divisive topic in the U.S., and it can kind of be tied in some ways to the idea of loss aversion. It's something we talk about in, in finance quite a bit, and the basic idea is people emotionally tie themselves and, and are weighed down more to loss than they are gain. But if you step back and look at it, legal immigration in the U.S., the gains are much stronger than the losses, right? In in People focus on the cons of immigration, right? But the pros tend to outweigh it statistically, looking at just just the numbers of it. Well, and like you say, I mean, you know, again, looking looking just at the numbers, if you say, first of all, we need some form of immigration in order to fill jobs, right? We need immigration in order to pay Social Security benefits eventually. You know, the, the cons tend to be, well, they're taking jobs that, that people who, you know, natives might might take. And it's, it's interesting in the book how he talks about, and I guess it makes perfect sense, right, is that typically immigrants either are highly skilled because they're, you know, engineers or, or something like that. They have a, a very specific skill or they're very low skilled, right? And, and they take jobs that are either plentiful or people aren't doing or something like that. Kind of the middle ground, the blue collar jobs that most Americans have aren't really the ones that immigrants take for the simple reason that those jobs are also plentiful in their country, right? Mm. So the reason they came here in the first place is because they didn't have opportunity. If they had those skills, they wouldn't have left because they would have had plenty of opportunity. Right. So they come here and it's, it's, and I think he talks about, you know, the, the biggest jobs where, where immigrants tend to, to have positions are, what was it? Cooks, housekeeping. agriculture, housekeeping, and, Americans don't really fill those jobs even when they're available. You know, they tend to fill jobs like truck drivers and uh, cashiers and things like that, where immigrants don't tend to take those jobs. So it's almost two two different markets. Right. You know, and it was interesting. He said the the people who tend to be hurt the most by immigration are prior immigrants. You know, people that have already immigrated here yeah. and have those jobs, and the new immigrants are, are potential threats to those jobs. So I guess, you know, it's, it's interesting. But like you say, I think, you know, it's going to be a, a discussion that's going to have to come up more and more over the next 10 years because 
I don't want to say time is running out. That sounds serious, <laughs> but to some extent, time is running out, right? As every year that goes by, we have fewer people in the workforce because the workforce is shrinking and in a growing economy, you should have more jobs available every year. Right. So clearly things are changing all over the world and there's different trends. And, you know, one, one of the good things is that as Mike was pointing out, people are looking at this stuff and people are trying to, whether it's change laws or, or change their business to try to react to where the, where the trends are going. You know, I'm excited because in our next discussion, we're going to talk about focusing on people that are, you know, now it's called senior citizens, but there's a different title for it that they talk about in the book. And it's going to be a really cool discussion about a different way of looking at uh, those groups of people. So I'm looking forward to, to discussing that. Yeah, I mean, to kind of sum it up here, 2030 is, you know, not as far away as, as it may seem. And there's a lot changing in how we prepare ourselves mentally and financially. There's a, there's a lot to look at. So that's kind of why we're digging into this book. And, you know, in addition to this book this season, we're excited to talk about some, some other topics that are not book related. And a few of those are maybe looking at employee stock options and RSUs and how those work, looking at the best practices for raising financially responsible children. We have a whole, a whole slew of stuff coming up. So we are happy to have you back listening to season two, and we will talk to you next episode. Financers is produced and edited by Sachetta and Callahan, LLC. All disclosures are posted to our website at sachetta.com forward slash financers. S-A-C-H-E-T-T-A dot com forward slash F-I-N-E-A-N-S-W-E-R-S. Thanks for listening.